and uh, grab your Bibles this morning and turn them, if you would, to Second Peter chapter two. We're going to begin at verse ten this morning. Now, I know this is halfway through a sentence. There's some overlap with last week. I think it's helpful for us to go here for some context as well as as we lead into the end of the chapter here. So 2 Peter chapter 2 from verse 10. This is talking about those who are under judgment and the Lord delivers us from those who are under judgment. But here we go. This is God's word. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak, of dignitar- speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure To carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away, to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. But it has happened. It has happened to them according to the true proverb: a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study these words that you have given to us this morning, we pray that you might grant us much wisdom. We see the weightiness of the matters that Peter sets before us and we know we need your help, both to protect us from those who are unrighteous and those who would seek to lead us in unrighteousness, as well as to grant us true wisdom and true understanding. Be with us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So today we are really focusing on the second half of 2 Peter chapter 2. In the first half of it, particularly as we looked at verses 1 to to 9, we sort of went up to verse 11, but we focused primarily on verses 1 to 9. We saw the the clear and the present danger 
opposed by false teachers within the church, and we see the judgment that follows. Now, these are people who, who secretly bring in what Peter describes early in the chapter as destructive heresies. And this week, we see some of the identifying markers of such people. Now, I've titled the sermon, Conniving Characteristics. Now, while that might sound fun, we know it's really not. This is serious. These are very weighty things before us. As we look at this, this is, these are words that have been needed by the church since the time that Peter wrote them. Even before Peter wrote this, there's needed to be wisdom regarding this because we see Peter affirm verse 1 of this chapter to false teachers were present even in Old Testament Israel. This has been a concern for the church for a long time. But some commentators think that because we are living in what's described as a, a postmodern era, where the idea of absolute truth is discarded, and we are told there is no absolute truth, which ironically isn't absolute truth, we need this more than ever. The warning of false teachers is potentially needed more today than ever before. Now, we do need to take some caution when it comes to false teachers, both to look out for them and how we identify them. Uh, Douglas Moo's commentary talks about the fact we need to have a balanced perspective when looking at potential false teachers. Because he acknowledges something I think we've all come up against before. That if somebody disagrees with me, whoever me in this room is, on any point regarding the Bible, they are immediately a false teacher. We throw them straight into the false teacher basket. There will be times when Christians disagree. I've been in ministry of some capacity or another for about 10 years. In that time, I've worked with at least seven pastors. I have not agreed with them about everything. There are times where we simply disagree. And there are times when those disagreements are times where we simply need to say, okay, we can agree to disagree. But there are those times, as Peter warns us, where there are disagreements that cannot be ignored. There are times where these disagreements are, are so severe about matters of important doctrine, whether it be about the Trinity, whether it be about the work of God within creation, whether it be many of these things like salvation, justification, God's ongoing work within us of sanctification, where we might need to, to not have fellowship with one another. The point I'm making is we need to have balance and we can't rush to throw everyone who we don't agree with on everything into the false teacher box. But again, if someone unrepentantly continues to perpetuate false teachings, errors regarding the personal work of God and his means of salvation, that's where by their teaching we truly can recognise false teachers. As we saw a number of times last week, we have to be wary. We have to be wary. These people might not be obvious straight away, but as Peter says, they secretly bring destructive doctrines into the church. But perhaps we're left with the question, if these heresies, if these things of teaching are so wrong, if they're so destructive, if we are standing on guard against these things, why do we see people continuing to follow false teachers? False teachers. 
obvious answer is there must be some level of appeal. Even if that's not found within the substance of what they teach, there must be some level of appeal. So as we look from primarily the second half, the, 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 the full stop onwards from verse 10 this morning through the end of verse 22, we're looking at some of those aspects of false teachers, some of those characteristics, and our three points are looking at some of those. Arrogance first, sensuality second, and thirdly, emptiness. So we start off by looking at this characteristic of false teachers of, of arrogance. Look at that full stop in verse 10. What do we read after that? They are presumptuous and self-willed. If you have a translation like the ESV before you this morning, you will see they are described as bold and willful. Right from the start there, we really get the idea of arrogance being present within false teachers. That verse 10 serves a bit of a transition between what's gone on before and things to come because we've gone from seeing the judgment coming for false teachers and then we move on. We've previously seen in those first nine verses particularly uh, a type of sexual sin perhaps likened to that of Sodom and Gomorrah as due to their rebelliousness in rejecting the authority of God that they face judgment. Behind all of this, there is an arrogance. There is an arrogance there. This bold willfulness or this self-willed attitude there can, by some people, be translated literally as arrogant. There is an arrogant demeanor that is adopted by false teachers. Peter outlines this for us here. So let's go on a little bit further. From the back of verse 10 into verse 11. We read this, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, angels are sort of thrown into the mix there. And it makes us stop and think, what's Peter really saying here? We have to work these things out a little bit here. It can be confusing. They're really brought in here to make this point of arrogance. Peter is addressing false teachers who, while many false teachers will be mindful of spiritual matters, it seems to be that the ones that Peter is primarily addressing for the church this morning, or when he wrote this letter, which he didn't write this morning a long time ago, God's preserved it for us, is primarily dealing with false teachers who are sceptical, at the very least, of spiritual matters. Again, not all false teachers are like this, but this seems to be the focus of the ones Peter's dealing with. Not spiritual, material stuff. Ties in a bit here to what we see in chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, where they're described as scoffers. They don't seem to believe in anything other than what's right before their eyes. How could they... If they are so arrogant that they get to be the judge, jury and and decision maker on everything that they see before them, of course they are not going to believe in matters that are so often unseen. So they make mockeries of angels. 
They make mockeries of even the fallen ones that Peter refers to. They make mockeries of angels who are greater in might and power than themselves. If you want to see arrogance, this is it. This is it. Now to understand more about what that would have been understand, these fallen angels and the angels themselves would have been understand as, there's a brilliant book which is incredibly dry, as most historically brilliant books are, on the early church and the culture and con- they called the culture and context of the early church. It can help you explain that a little bit more. While it's as dry, it doesn't mean it's not helpful. Worth a read if you have time. You need a lot of time. These guys, they make mockeries of angels. They make mockeries of fallen angels. They are so caught in the material things, things they can see and identify right before them, that they put themselves in a really, really foolish situation and put themselves in. They reveal a spiritual blindness. They reveal a spiritual unawareness of the things going on around them. And this is contrasted by Peter to angels who, who didn't fall, but Peter describes as being mightier than them. These ones who are greater in might and power, who watch but, but refrain from bringing judgment before these false teachers, before God. The marker of arrogance is being created here by Peter. As I said last week, the second chapter of 2 Peter mirrors in a lot of ways the entire book of Jude, which is just one chapter as we'd see it in the Bible. And in verse 9 there, in Jude, uh, we read that Michael did not pass a blasphemous judgment on Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It would have been blasphemous for Michael to pass that judgment on, uh, on Satan because it's not his place. It's not Michael's place. It's not any angel's place and it's not any person's place to pass judgment, but it is God's. These false teachers are arrogant enough to pass judgment. To assume they can determine the eternal, the eternal destination of the people around them. And we get into verse 12 and we read the word, but at the start of verse 12. And this is a grammatical use that Peter's using it for to, to make it clear that he's changing his focus back from, false, from, from angels to false teachers directly. And Peter says that these false, these, these materialistically focused teachers, they're going to say all sorts of stuff about all sorts of things that they have absolutely no idea about. Peter says they're ignorant of the things that they speak of and they are not going to get away with it. They think they will in their arrogance, but they will not get away with it. Perhaps as Peter is writing this, this is all being read out to the church and it would have been read in one go. The church's mind has gone to the fact that I know that person over there who is teaching these things that Peter's talking about. And they seem to be getting away with it. And while we're only a few verses away from what Peter has just said, he does bring his audience's mind back to the fact that they will face judgment. There is a punishment for these false teachers. 
God will deal with those who blaspheme his holy name. We look once more at the punishment that Peter talks about here. The punishment that he has spoken about. Get down to verse 17. We see the blackness of darkness being reserved for them forever. And perhaps we ask, is that too harsh? Well, the answer is no, it is not too harsh. In verse 12, the arrogance of false teachers has led them, Peter tells us, to act like natural brute beasts made to be caught. They are irrational, animalistic, ignorant in their behaviour and their arrogance makes them think they can get away with this. Now, as we look at this, maybe we want to extend grace and maybe we say, surely ignorance is a good enough excuse to avoid a punishment. When a law is broken, the law is broken. When Anna and I moved to Canberra, I was horrified to realise that school zones lasted the whole school day. I got found out. It only happened once, but I got found out. I was very fortunate enough to get off with a warning as well. But I didn't deserve just a warning. I deserved the consequences for that. Because I could say I didn't know. I genuinely didn't know. I was ignorant of what the rules were. But I was driving on those, on those roads. The responsibility to know the rules was on me. It wasn't on the police to tell me, and it was signed as well. I should have just read the sign. Ignorance is no excuse for breaking the rules when we're driving. We referenced this quickly last week. Romans makes it very clear to us that all men have enough revealed to them within creation that there is a God who exists, a God who created everything, a God who is majestic, a God who is powerful, a God who is mighty, a God who surely created everything that is around us, a God whose creation we live in. We can't say, oh, I didn't know that God was there, so I decided to do my own thing. There is enough revealed to us within creation to make us aware of God and seek to know what his rules are. Ignorance is no excuse. These false teachers that Peter's talking about have had every opportunity, not just to know of God through creation around them, but to know God through Scripture. To see God's greatest revelation, his clearest revelation of himself through Scripture. They have had the opportunity to know him through this, but they choose to remain ignorant. They choose to remain animalistic. They choose the destruction rather than the life that God gives they ignore spiritual and moral guidance and instead follow their fleshly desires because once more they think they can get away with it. Arrogance truly is one of the markers of a false teacher and it is so, so dangerous. When someone is arrogant and in a position of authority, they make themselves the ultimate authority in so many ways. 
It is a recipe for disaster. If a teacher shows no interest in the things of God because they think they have it all figured out, if somebody manages to get through Bible college and they never open their Bible again or never seek help in understanding God's word again, we have markers of arrogance right there. This shows these teachers think that they don't need God anymore. And how could anyone with spiritual integrity, supposedly teaching those wonderful truths of God that save our souls for eternity, how could any spiritual teacher say with integrity these things while living within God's creation, while having access to God's word? We must be cautious of the arrogant. And then we move into our second point, which we see another marker of sensuality. And this really does flow out of the arrogance in a lot of ways. Now, I admit that sensuality isn't a word that I really use other than when I'm looking at Scripture and it comes up. It's just not a common word that I use today, and I'm sure many of us are in the same boat. So what is it? Was anything relating to or consisting of gratification of the senses or an indulgence of the appetite? Basically, just if something feels good, we want to take it. If something tastes good, we want to eat it. Again, it confirms this really worldly focus, just what we can see around us, ignorance of the spiritual things, ignorance of God, and just what feels good right now. Now, I can say that sensuality is an evident marker of a false teacher, but we need to see if Peter actually says this as well. Verse 13, Peter talks about the false teachers being as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Now, that might make you pause and think of all the times that you might have smiled or laughed during the day. Don't do that now. No, it, Peter's not having a go at people enjoying themselves, smiling and laughing and having fun during the day. What's going on here? The word for pleasure being used here in the Greek is hedon, where we get the word hedonist from, which is one who lives for pleasure. And if someone truly does fit this description, which many of the false teachers Peter talks about do, and as I said last week, that list from monogism, we would see many who do just live for pleasure. Pleasure is the compass they live their lives by. No matter where they are, they open up the compass and it's always pointing to immediate, short-term pleasure and gratification. If it feels good now, do it. That is their measuring stick for life. If it feels good, now do it. See, if you're arrogant enough to think that you don't need God and that maybe God doesn't exist and you can teach whatever you want about God, you are not going to be looking to God for definitions of good and upright behaviour. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Those wonderful godly qualities that we are to supplement our faith with, they will have no presence in the life of this pleasure chaser. 
And if somebody is always chasing pleasure, always looking for that gratification and chasing those things that feel good now, they're not a particularly stable person. Because what feels good now might not feel good tomorrow. But the day after that, you might be back to that thing that felt good two days ago. There is both a moral horror that accompanies this as well as a complete instability. But these are some of the people who enter the church and say, I know about God, let me teach you. We cannot trust these people. They are unstable. They will lead us into instability. They will lead us down the paths of unrighteousness. Now, again, Peter's not having a crack about people who might smile or laugh or have fun over a lunch during the day. When Peter talks about they do this, they, they count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They do it in the broad light of day. They have no shame. They have no shame about what they're doing. It doesn't matter who sees it. They like it. They're doing it. It is a horrific thing. As we work through chapter 2, there's a lot of parallels between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Peter calls these people spots and blemishes. Chapter 3, verse 14, Peter tells his readers, those who are in the church, those who hopefully are of God, to look to the return of Christ and with our eyes fixed on him, our eyes fixed on him, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish. These people are far from God, yet they try and teach about God. These people do not look to the return of Christ, yet they assume they can take on a role of teacher within the church, using that as an opportunity to just open up for chasing their own desires. Peter is rightly painting a picture here of false teachers that is a long way from flattering. And something else I said last week is we can't just assume this is an out there thing. These false teachers might get incredibly close to us. Peter talks about them eating, eating at the same table. We need to be on guard. Because while they, while they eat with you, their eyes are full of adultery. They see everyone as a potential partner in their lust. And they cannot be satisfied and they will not be satisfied so long as they remove themselves from God's goodness. And because they cannot be satisfied, they keep spiralling further and further into sin. Just as hedonism is, it's a further remove, a downward trend away from God continually. And they bring others into that sin with them. They seduce others. The seduce here has its roots in the the Greek word which is used for a, a trap that they would have used in hunting and fishing. There's a deliberate 
cunning nature to this. And who, who's their prey? Who are their targets? The targets are those who are unstable, perhaps those who are are new to the faith, perhaps those going through huge life crises, perhaps those who are just really struggling in their faith at the moment. And these are the people these false teachers will latch on to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter encourages us to be stable and this gives us further motivation to pursue that stability found in God alone. Now, early in the chapter, Peter spoke of these false teachers as greedy. And we really see greed driving so much of this sensuality. We see hints of that in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 14 of this chapter. Greed motivated them, and it was greed that motivated Balaam, who Chris read about from Numbers 22, verses 22 to 40. For a price... For a price, he was willing to curse Israel. It was just after the gold. And these people, they are likened to that. Balaam was so blinded by his greed, his eyes were so fixed on filling his... He didn't have bank accounts back then, but for us, filling his bank account, that even his donkey... A beast of burden, even his donkey had a greater spiritual awareness than himself. Imagine being rebuked by a donkey. But God used even this donkey to show Balaam his foolishness. Well, we can say a lot more that the heart of the false teachers is this sensuous greed which motivates their willful, their arrogant, their bold, wrong dismissal of God and things that are honourable and things that are pleasing to him. Because of their greed, they would rather have sensual pleasure and they would rather draw others into that than ever seek the paths of righteousness and to ever know the goodness, the fullness of life that God offers. And finally, we see that they are empty. I'm going to read verses 17 through to verse 19 for us now. These, those are false teachers, are wells without water, Clouds carried by a tempest for whom, it is re- for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them, them liberty, they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage." Look at verse 17, you see those clouds coming, carried by a tempest. You look to the sky, you see clouds, you expect water, you expect life to be given to the earth. But there's no water there, is there? There's no nourishment, there's no refreshment to be found there. 
They're described as springs that are empty. Again, springs are meant to be bursting forth of water that is necessary for life. But these guys are empty springs. They are just holes in the ground. Imagine you've wandered into the desert. You've gone without water for hours now. It's a scorcher of a day. You know there's a spring up ahead. Your map tells you there's a spring up ahead. Someone's told you, go there, there's a spring. You make it. And it's empty. Sometimes these false teachers will have every appearance of being the thing that we want. Maybe the thing that we need. They promise freedom but only have corruption and slavery and bondage. There is nothing but hypocrisy and inconsistency and emptiness that is offered by false teachers. Peter is making that so clear for it. Sadly, verse 18, people will still fall for it. And these false teachers will speak loud boasts of folly. They entice by the passions of the flesh and people fall for it. Things that look like freedom. Things that look like moving forward so often just ensnare us. One of the names I mentioned from that that list that Monogism put out a few years ago of modern day false teachers is someone called Jen Hatmaker. A lot of so-called progressive Christians love her teachings, but she gained a lot of popularity in the last few years as a so-called teacher in the church, not for standing up for biblical truths, but for promoting homosexual marriage. It's where things are going. Love is love. This is okay. If that's what you think is right, then good for you, do it. It's not in the scripture, is it? We begin to circle back in some ways to where we started this morning. False teachers will not be producing followers who are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. They will be taking people into what feels good now. They will be taking people to a place where ignorance is glorified and God, who is a source of wisdom, is rejected. As we continue to walk with God on a daily basis, examine those who teach you. Now I stand here saying that with a sense of fear and trepidation. But examine those who teach you. If God is not central, if the person is elevating themselves above God, doing the opposite of what John the Baptist did, where he said, I must decrease that he that is Christ might increase, if the opposite of that is happening, we have, we have problems. We have serious, serious problems. Is there an arrogance that blinds teachers to 
those things that God has made clear in his word. Is there an arrogance that leads to boasts that are based in something other than Christ alone? Because here's all we can really boast about in our lives. Is is there a push for greedy, materialistic, sensual gain? Is there a lack of consistency? Is there a lack of stability? If we find these things are present, greed, arrogance, sensuality, emptiness, we have problems. If we are following teachers who are like this, we will not be growing as true disciples. By God's grace, we might, but it won't be because of that minister or that pastor or that person. And if we find these things, then run away. Run away because the judgment, not just for the person, as we saw last week, but for the person who follows these false teachers is serious and eternal. If we know the truth and reject the truth, the consequences are massive. And it would have been better if we had not known the truth in the first place. We should be avoiding this at all costs. If we find ourselves having to flee, do not flee blindly into a hermitage where we think we can just make it on our own. We think that our safety is in isolation. At the end of verse 19, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Be enslaved to God, to righteousness, to goodness, to life. We're slaves to sin or we're slaves to God? I know which one I'd prefer. We must be mature and steadfast in him and grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Be on guard against false teachers because the damage they do is horrendous. Flee from them. Go to God's word. Find teaching that will actually work to build up the church rather than stay and encourage teachers who will just seek to entice the church away from our one and only Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We grow in him. So do everything you can to facilitate that growth with the right teaching of his glorious, majestic and life-saving word. Let's pray. Lord God, while what we have read in your word this morning is, again, heavy and weighs on our hearts, we pray, O oh God, that you might grant us a vigilance in our souls to truly be on guard against these things. We pray that we might avoid those who teach in ways that are arrogant, focused on short-term pleasures, not you, and are empty. We pray that you might protect us from these things and guard us. And we thank you, O oh God, for those teachers who are not like this, but promote your word truly and well and faithfully. We pray that there might be more and more teachers raised up to do this, that your word might be heard in every place, not by those who have...